This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Hello, friends. I'm Marvin Hubbard. Join me every Tuesday morning at 11 on Otago Access Radio for conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. We're talking with Councillor Jim O'Malley, Dunedin City Councillor, and we'll be talking about issues that affect this community and this nation. Welcome, Jim. How are you? Oh, good. Thanks, Marvin. Good to be on again. You've been on the council for some years now, haven't you? Yeah, this is year seven for me. Yep. Uh, briefly, how have you found your time on the city council and you're the infrastructure uh, chairman of the infrastructure committee, aren't you? Yep. What changes have you seen over the last few years since you've been on the city council? Oh, it's, it's a, that's a quite an interesting question, really. Um, I think, well, there's two sets of changes you go through. One, a personal. When you first get on the council, it takes you a while to figure out what's going on. So I think your first term is more one of understanding, and then you really start hitting your stride once you've got in there for a while. But on the other side of it, um, a few of us over the years have pushed for better and better um, systems inside the council and I see them coming through now. I think the council is more responsive. People won't necessarily agree with me but I think the council is more responsive than it used to be to the community and I think does a lot better job at planning its long term stuff and um, all in all I think it's a better organisation than when I first got on it. So, well, I remember that the planning process is there's a lot more work on planning on planning process ahead of time than there was, I think. What do you think about the government's rebranded affordable water plan? <laughs> um, I guess I, I guess I'm not sure if I still agree that it's an affordable water plan. Um, my position on three waters has always been one of. Um, there was clearly a need for making sure our delivery standards were brought up to international standards, and we were below that. And so the formation of Tomato ROI was a good thing, and I think every council agreed that that was good. Um, and I would say that by far and away the majority of people involved in local government are also supportive of co-governance um, and the Tamana Otawai um, emphasis on three waters. But in terms of the actual delivery model using a what is effectively a glorified CCO model um, I still think is fundamentally flawed and I think this was quite literally just putting some light touch on community feedback that the people were still not happy with these reforms in general so they went from the four entities to the ten entities to say that that gave you greater local control Um, but I know full well in the background that there's definitely work in the background to go back to the four entities in the not-too-distant future. And you see that with some of the pricing numbers that were put out by DIA, and that's actually why Waitaki District 
went with Christchurch based on those numbers, but those numbers are, in my opinion, pretty much designed to evoke an emotional response rather than necessarily a, a good um, social response. All right. Well, what would you like to see them do? I'd like to see them come back. Well, actually, one of the things that we've been doing, and you asked me, like, what's it like being on the council for the last few years? When the Havelock North um, incident went down, and that's now four years over four years ago, um, could even be five years ago now, um, we knew that the government was going to bring about substantial changes in terms of safety and quality of especially fresh water you know, drinking water. And so we embarked on a major program of increased delivery, um, making sure we've got everything funded correctly, and that work is just finished. And we are now able to meet the government's um, directives in terms of um, the three waters. And for a, there will be a rates increase that comes with it to bring our water bill in line with others. Um, but we can fund it internally ourselves. So what I would like the government to do is actually come and look at Dunedin, quite specifically come and look at Dunedin, and say how did a city of medium size um, respond to the government's um, challenge and come in and acknowledge that in fact we have which means there is no need really if you did what we did there is no need to take the assets away and put them into these entities and and the reason I want the government to come and do that with us is because there's still a democratic link between water and and you um, when it, when it's in the council because you still have people like me to come after and talk about the quality and the price and all such other things and that's going to be moved into a very business-like model and I think that a lot of democratic principles are going to get lost in the process and rather like electricity reform it's going to have a lot of promises it's not going to deliver and then it's going to be unable to be unravelled so I really want them to have one last look before they jump really The um Electricity reforms, they talk about them as reforms, but actually it makes you kind of jumpy when you hear the word reform anymore because the cost of electricity for the average person has gone up considerably, hasn't it? Well, I mean, if you look at your electricity bill just compared to your rates bill, I mean, it's substantially higher than what you get for everything that the city provides, water, um, open spaces, transport, all that added up together is less than your electricity bill for most houses. Um, so, you know, it's always hard to tell what the outcome was going to be because you don't have the comparator mm. sitting next to you. But in terms of comparing it to other things, I think you'll see that electricity's gone up a lot compared to um, telephone bills, you know, or your cell phone bill and, and your water, even with our new water bill, that's electricity is still going to be substantially higher. So, yeah, I don't think it delivered anything in the end. Oh, it delivered a lot of um, w- w- million-dollar wages to CEOs. Well, and I think that's the other point. This, supposedly you're dealing with, if you bring a business-like model and you get some kind of efficiency, even that, in my opinion, is just a belief system. It hasn't really been delivered. But let's say you did believe in that. You have to say then the amount of efficiency that you're bringing in is greater than all the additional costs you bring in when you bring in the boards, the executive leadership teams, the highly paid CEOs. I mean, Aurora's CEO, I'm not sure what they're on, but when that was a department of the city council, I can guarantee you now that the 
electricity unit manager's salary was substantially lower than the general manager's salary of Aurora for pretty much delivering the same outcome. Okay. Do you think that... um, Are we on the way to having an inland port for transport between rail and... and Okay, so... Yes, I worked up... um, Inland port's been definitely something that I've been interested in for a long time. Um, can can I, you explain what an inland port is? Yeah, basically an inland port is a, a... You could call it a freight transfer hub would be another way to call it. It effectively... it, it you, The magic distance is 50 kilometres from a port or more. Things become cheaper to put on rail than they do on the road to get to a port. So you create a transfer space somewhere inland um, with the intention of that a lot of the stuff going there is going to get on rail and then go to the port, so that's why they're called inland ports. Um, port Otago is probably the, is the only major port in New Zealand left that doesn't have an inland port. So Christchurch has one at um, um, just to the south at Rolleston. Um, there are three or four being built between Tar- uh, between Hamilton and Auckland and, and Tauranga to, to deal with those two ports, but we don't have one here at all. Um, it's been in the motion for a long time now. I think it's slowly but surely starting to capture local support. But the first thing you've got to get past with almost anything in New Zealand or probably around the world, but it's pretty bad in New Zealand, is um, the tendency of people to say no when you've got a new idea. So you've got to wait for that to ride out before you can come through and eventually you get to the other end. But we're putting together a business case at the DCC for one. Um, it wouldn't be in Dunedin, though. It'll be in Melbourne, just north of Milton, um, which is the ideal place for it to be. Will that take trucks off the road? Well, it should. I mean, it's like 60-odd percent, like 67% of the freight going to Port Otago now currently is on rail. The idea would be to get that up to, like, 90. Um, and obviously, if every railway wagon that goes by, there's one less truck that was on the road on that trip um, so yeah definitely will um, it also builds up and makes industrial space available because you zone the land next to a port inland port as industrial and that's actually really important for Dunedin we're slowly but surely running out of industrial land believe it or not we're growing um, there's not much land down on the waterfront in fact that land barely turns over it's so um, it's so rare and then the industrial area behind Mosgill is filling up very fast so we're actually running out of industrial land as well so we need that port for that reason as well Will that be will it handle logs as well as containers? I, I would like it to I think ultimately there's an argument among the forestry people that that's effectively a second handling of the logs um, but which could put somewhere like 10 to $15 on each tonne of logs going out. Um, however, in most other parts of New Zealand, that's exactly how it's done. So they obviously can deal with the economics there. Um, the other one would be that's the kind of thing where you actually might say to the government, the damage by log trucks on the roads is so great that we would like you to help us out with building the facility so that we can lower the charge for the transfer. But, you know, last year... The DCC, so the ratepayers, spent a million dollars on about 500 metres of Ward Street um, because it was so damaged by the log trucks. So, yes, getting them off the roads and onto rail would be a big thing for us. That's one of the things between rail and roads. They 
roads are relatively cheap for the trucks to use, and the railway have to build their own tracks and maintain them. Yep, and I would I would go so far as to say that um, even though there's a road user charge associated with heavy traffic, I have never seen the calculation as to whether or not that actually is truly paying for the damage that's caused. Um, you can run thousands and thousands and thousands of light cars over a road and it does it no damage at all, and then just half a dozen heavy log trucks will just do about a year's worth of damage in a week. So to... To have them paying the rates they're paying, it, it's sort of created an artificial environment too that really where the cost and damage has not really been truly recuperated. Far too much is put on rail and not enough is put on road and obviously that puts freight on roads at that point. Huh. You were, While we're talking about roads and rail, do you support a suburban passenger commuter rail service between Mosgill and Dunedin and maybe between Port Chalmers and Dunedin? Um, well, yeah, I certainly do. And again, this is one that I've been putting up for a while. Um, and actually in the next long-term plan, which is next year, so you know, you'd be aware at least, I don't know if all the listeners are, but basically the councils go through um, a big budgetary um, setting process every three years yeah. called the long-term plan. So next year is the next long-term plan, and actually Councillor Carmen Houlihan put up the motion at the last at our annual plan meetings this year to have the question put into the um, consultation document for people of Dunedin to ask that answer that question: Do you want commuter rail to be reinstated between Dunedin and Mosgill? So we're targeting targeting Mosgill first because there's a obvious demand there. Um, the bus services are used really heavily out of Mosgill, especially yeah, for the commute. Yeah, they're fully full at certain times of the yeah, day. Yeah, at certain times of the day, and every time they put on a new bus, it fills up. So that's why we're building the park and rides there, and they'll start being built um, next year. And we are building the parks next to the railway lines so that if we get commuter rail back, then they've been built there. Um, I think there's a great role for it. It's, it's, it's got its own... Transport corridor doesn't interfere with cars or anything when it's on the on the railway line. So every person you get over there is one less car in the morning affecting you getting in in the morning. If you can't, if you have to use your car, um, can't really go to Port Chalmers anymore. Not for a long time because um, the construction of the cycleway meant that there's not any opportunity for double railing any section of the Port Chalmers line anymore. So it's probably going to be a long way off before we got commuter rail coming back out of Port Chalmers. Do you think it was a mistake? I think it should have been taken into account. Yeah. I mean, we almost ended up doing the same thing on the main trunk line coming out of the Chain Hills Tunnel as well. Um, there was a lot of conflict there between the Cycleway Trust and the railway line for about 400 metres in the Burnside area, which... The council eventually fixed by getting acquiring land for the cycleway to move away from the railway line. Would you would Dunedin benefit if we had a passenger service between Invercargill and Christchurch? I think it's good. To, I think it's worth checking out again. Again, along those lines of trains can carry an awful large number of people. Um, we are not on the government's horizon, though, for any of that. Um, I'm going up to Wellington on the 28th for a conference on the National Rail, 
and I will be the only voice, I think, from the lower South Island at that conference. Um, it would be good to see this stuff come back. We're going to have to wait our turn in line, though, and I really would say this to all our local MPs. You really, we're not got, we've not got the um, attention of governments to sufficiently to be talking about getting intercity commuter rail going again until they take that seriously. Um, the last time you know parties put out something, I remember the Greens about three or four years ago now put out an intercity commuter rail position paper. And it didn't go below Ashburton. So I think a lot of times people forget that Dunedin exists and, and that, in fact, it could be viable. There are trains that I have heard of that are manufactured in Japan that run on the same gauge as New Zealand gauge and um, have tilting train capacity. They can run at about 130 kilometres an hour, so they could do that trip in three hours. And I think that if they were put back on the line, they would be viable and as much as they probably wouldn't necessarily make money but but with a bit of local support they'd be able to run um but the other thing to really remember when it comes to rail is that this has been 30 years of running down an asset um and the railway lines themselves are in not good condition so a good example would be out of Dunedin down to the south it used to be double railed all the way to Moskill they pulled that rail up it's single railed now um, and it's going to cost us about 12 to 15 million just to put in a one kilometre passing loop so we can bring, so we could bring passenger trains back into that loop. Same thing would have to be constructed on the main trunk line in different places. But, you know, I think it's time for the government to look at this seriously. Um, it's never been liked by Treasury, and that's made the main problem that we face is that Treasury's always hated rail. And so when you're going out to spend money on infrastructure, they always give it a red flag when you go there. Why do you think? It's straight philosophical. Um, just before the Kaikoura earthquakes, around about six months before, it didn't make the press, but I did see it come past in some government announcements. There was a white paper out of Treasury just to shut rail down completely. So as recently as just five years ago, Treasury was calling for the total shutdown of rail, um, saying, and I don't, it's just philosophical because the numbers don't make sense. And oh, that's crazy with climate change. Well, and actually it was, the, it was the CEO of Main Freight that really, I think, changed the whole government attitude, and that's when he said, um, when it comes to Kaikoura, get the rail line up first. We need main freight. A trucking company needs rail to function, um, and they get it. So I don't know why the suits and treasury don't get it. One of the things I I wonder about is a state-owned enterprise the best way to handle rail. State-owned enterprises are supposed to make a profit, aren't they? Like a business. Yeah, and I think and rail your passengers. Passenger lines all over the world, particularly in Europe and Japan, are very good for their economies, but they're subsidized. I think that's you've actually just hit it with the word economy as the as the is what you've hit there. You can either put you can put any transport function, but let's say rail, under either an economic or a business lens. And how you expect them to perform is quite different depending on what lens you put them under. So as I said to you just earlier on, DCC spent a million dollars on road maintenance for log trucks. Now, if we put lo- putting logs on rail under an economic model, we'd be taking into account the damage those trucks cause on the road. 
But if we put them under a business model, we just simply say you've got to get your kilometres travelled under that many tonnes of log below this number. And the problem is that rail is not it's not respected for what it does, so it's expected to do something which it really can't afford to do, and that is it's expected to do magic, really. It's to move tons and tons and tons of material for less than it costs you to put it on a road, um, which is unfair. So I think it would be better if it was a crown entity. Um, so that puts it more under Kafata Aura and other and education and that sort of stuff to say that it has an economic role to play and its role is around safety. I mean, how many people get killed by hitting heavy trucks? Um, Resilience on the transport network by simply moving that heavy stuff onto a platform that's better for it. Um, and then, and then the other one, obviously, is climate change. I think it's it's ten to one return on kilometres travelled per gallon of diesel if you're on a train versus a truck. Would you also favour a, a, a ferry link between Littleton and Wellington? And Wellington, if it if it worked, I mean, the last it was the old Rangatira that ran out of there till the late 1970s, yeah. and that was a night ship. Yep. yep. Um, I'd, I'd have to see whether or not it makes more sense to do that, or whether the good a good rail link to Picton mm. would be better. I don't know. I've honest. heard they actually need to upgrade the rail link between Christchurch and um, Picton anyway. The whole South Island rail links need to be upgraded. I mean, the Dunedin to Omaru section is probably, if you travelled it in 1940, you wouldn't know any difference. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a big one. Um, the other reason you might want to roll on, roll off in Christchurch is obviously for large disasters like large earthquakes. Um, you may, you know, with AF8 hits again, Kaikoura line might get knocked out again. So there'd be that resilience reason to have it in there too. Should we start thinking more about resilience? think we used to i think we just got rid of thinking about it um we used to put deliberate redundancy into engineering to make sure it was tougher than we engineered it to be so that you'd build something and didn't really have to come back to it for a long time well you'd think with climate change that would be the normal thing to do but we haven't done it i mean it seems to me like a lot of our infrastructure is really not i mean denine's worked on their water and other things but across the country our infrastructure is fragile right now. It's pretty sad to look at it. When you go overseas and you come back and you compare that, it's, a lot of our stuff is very much run down into the system, run down into the ground. Unless um, you go to America, then you see the same thing. Yeah, but even they, even if they don't maintain this stuff, they certainly build. They build new very well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm gonna play some music now. Mm, I think that's good. Cool. Reclaiming what was theirs We come in peace, they said To dig and sow We come to work the lands In common and to make the way Scrum grow this earth divided We will make whole So it shall be a common Treasury for all And a sin of property We do this day No man has any right 
lads Now if you wear the walls rise up at their command They made the laws Say us well The clergy dazzle us with heaven or they damn us into hell We will not worship Lord they serve a rich while poor folks starve We work, we eat together We need no swords We will not bow to the masters Or pay rent to the lords Till we are free Though we are poor Ah, you niggas all stand up for glory Stand up now Stand up now Stand up now The orders came They sent the hired men and troopers To wipe out the diggers' claim Tear down their cottages And destroy their corn They were dispersed But still the vision lingers on And your poor take courage You rich take care This earth was made a common treasury For everyone to share All things in common All people want Come in peace, the order's kind to cut them down. We're talking with Councillor Jim O'Malley, and we're talking about uh, the common good, I suppose, when you talk about transport and other infrastructure. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. Well, what are some of the uh, factors that may have seemed to have diminished New Zealand's democracy over the last 30 years? We can put a couple of hours aside for that one, I think, Marvin. Yeah. Uh, um... um I think, you know, we sort of touched on it right at the start when I said that, like, Treasury's position on rail was was more philosophical than it was necessarily economic. I think that, you know, if you want to look back to what's the watershed moment, the watershed moment is clearly the fourth Labour government, um, and it's clearly... Treasury was heavily involved in that. Well, they were just waiting for them to arrive. And I have a feeling that, you know, if we go forward now and look at three waters, Treasury and DIA again were waiting for the right people to be in front of them and and head off on yet another ideological (laughs) um, bent. So you go back there, and the ideological position simply was that a free market approach, so you're talking basically Friedmanite economics, a free market approach will always be self-regulating and therefore will always move, move to the most efficient space. Um, I think the fact that, it, that, that that has never been demonstrated ever in any society in the modern era should be a reason not to believe in it, but it's so compelling that people love the idea and they're like, the reason that government doesn't perform is government is inherently inefficient and nobody's held to account, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I've worked in big organisations, whether they be government or whether they be private, and my general finding has been it's not whether the organisation is public or private, it's whether it's big or small determines whether it runs, you know, air quotes efficiently or not um and so i think what's happened um 
over the years is that we've gone down this econ- business model, which is called an economic model, and it's had an effect on everything. So we've got the situation now where the universities are running out of money and it's because they were following a model that they were told to follow and the government was withdrawing support year after year. So as a critical thinking institution, they've been weakened over the years. Our media has been incredibly weakened over the last 30 years. We don't have any, any more um, investigative journalism of any quality left in the mainstream. You don't see any of it on television. You see very little of it on radio. It's not actually investigative, and you see almost none of it in the newspapers anymore. No one has been put aside as a member of the media and said, take six weeks on this story and get to the bottom of it and tell all the people listening or reading exactly what's going on. That's all stopped, and that's been replaced by you have 30 minutes to write about the latest thing that happened today. And the problem with that is then you've got very short attention span, low analysis media. And if you look at what's the most critical component of a democracy, in my opinion, it's the fourth estate. So the things that set everything off that where we are now has had their impact on the fourth estate as well. And so I guess we're weakened across the board at this point. Is this... One of the reasons for the rise of the authoritarian populist right in, in other countries. I think I think what happens, and I would say I certainly saw this. You know, I'm a binational, so I, I vote in American elections till still until Bernie Sanders doesn't get to be president, and then I stop. Um, but I think you know when I looked at that Sanders Trump standoff that ended up becoming a Clinton Trump standoff. Americans were actually looking for something that wasn't in the centre anymore. They were looking for something out on the edge. Um, and the Democrats only offered them the centre, so they went off to the right. Um, if they'd been offered something on the left, they would have gone there as well. So I do think that dissatisfaction with the general way in which politics is playing itself out now, and there's a general, and a, you know, a general dissatisfaction with politicians in general, is that creates a vacuum which can be filled by anybody who comes forward with a hopeful message. And that could be on the left or the right, and it's the right that seems to have the greater voice at the moment. So we're going over there, and, you know, it's history all over again. The 1930s produced either fascist or socialist governments, and the 2030s are looking like they're about to do the same thing. Only only America doesn't have a Roosevelt coming along. Yeah, well, we're very lucky there. The Roosevelt administration was amazing because of the breadth of it. You had everybody advising the New Deal from conventional economists, very conservative, radical Marxist socialists. Mm, mm. And he was listening to all of them. And he was, I tell you one thing that they were doing with the New Deal, and, and actually every government that successfully dealt with ending the depression and I know there's a debate as to whether the second world war ended it or not but I think some were already coming out before the war started what they all had in common is they took a pretty radical approach to a big problem and they all had New Zealand had the same approach as well which was when the economy is as bad as it is during the depression there is only one organisation left with the capacity to influence the economy and that's the government and one of the best ways you can do it is good capital works programs. 
they employ people in the short term and they're left behind an asset that it keeps the economy strong again afterwards. So the New Deal was just packed full of capital works programs and so was a lot of the socialist stuff that the first Labor government did in New Zealand. Um, and that's the answer to the fascists on the other side who say that we've just got to pay less taxes and be more authoritarian. Okay. Now, New Zealand um, has become more and more divided and divisive since COVID. With the beginning of COVID-19, there was a sort of feeling of togetherness, of a, t- of a team spirit. But by the end of COVID, that had changed. Do you think it's part of what we've already been talking about? or I think it has its... Yeah, I mean, I think the way it played out at the end has its roots in what we are just talking about in terms of the role of the media. And also, remember, we've got a whole new media, if you want to call it that, in terms of social media, where you've got relatively, I wouldn't say regulated or unregulated, but um, whether or not something that goes up as to be consumed by everybody else to think about has actually had any thought put into it and it has any rigour in it, you, you, you can expect more out of newspapers and radio I mean they are far from perfect newspapers radio and television but at least they might feel that they have to pay some attention to whether or not what they're saying is truthful or not when you get to social media there's less of that around so there's opportunity for all sorts of things to be said and if they sound right then people glom onto them I think Deneen's fairly lucky when it comes to newspapers compared to yeah, and we were also very lucky in COVID as well because we didn't have to go through what Auckland went through, which was a series of multiple lockdowns. And I think that that's when people get got upset with the approach to COVID. They started to lose faith in the idea that lockdowns were actually working or not. And to be honest, once they start to fail, they do tend to fail at that point. Um, but the government was just getting us up to a vaccination record. I have a feeling... My feeling is that if you're going to look back in 50, 60 years' time as to what countries in the world did what they did over COVID-19, New Zealand will stand out as being one of the best responses out there. I have, but, my, but my feeling is that the government did not clearly enunciate why, why it was doing what it was doing after the first lockdown. Everybody can understand the first lockdown. We were breaking the cycle. If we break it completely, we can be COVID-free how they were dealing with the breakouts in Auckland later and when they were going to lift everything and open the border again, I have a feeling they thought that that conversation was going to be too complex. So then they simplified it and people could spot it was simplified and then they lost faith. Yeah. Do we have enough... The politicians will have enough faith in the people's ability to think and, and if you're given the right information, they'll come to some... A real, a reasonable conclusion. I think it's that's a good question because I have a thing that's really asking how should a politician function and should they have <coughs> respect for the people they, that vote for them in such a way as to give them the respect of saying that you probably are quite capable of making as good a decision as I am. Um, there's a tension in, in politics in the, in the modern era, and again, this goes back to probably the 1980s when they were also playing with the relationship between elected government and, and unelected government, the, you know, the administrative side of government. And I think anybody of an age 
can remember seeing the Yes Minister series. Well, I can tell you that even at the City Council level that operates at that level. So you have a situation then where maybe advisors to the government are telling the government that they know better, that they know what they're doing, and it's better not to get involved with (coughs) all of the noise that comes with bringing a decision out into the public. But the problem with that is, is that even if you are right, everybody else has witnessed you not listening to them. And that has a massive negative effect later. I've got another feeling, particularly when we look at Great Britain and New Zealand, is that in the late 30s and early 40s and even early 50s, both Labour parties had a mixture of academics and working class people. Mm-hmm. And that changed by the 80s, the, both in Great Britain and here. In fact, the most academically productive government we ever had was in 1986. You had more people from university, more people with advanced degrees, and probably one of the worst outcomes you've ever seen. Certainly for working people, yeah. Um, But is there a feeling, you think, between average people who haven't been to university, and their children may not even go to university, of them and us. If they, do they feel represented? This is one of the things we're saying. If the government believed that people, if, if things were talked about and explained, it would come to rational decisions. But if, if the mm. government doesn't believe that, and the people don't believe they're heard, what happens? Well, I agree with actually what you're saying in terms of do a lot of people out there feel now they're not being heard and not listened to? I mean, even I feel that (laughs) to a certain extent. Um, um, The outcome of that, well, it's either disengagement and people just stop engaging or revolution because if they want to stay engaged and they feel they're not being heard to, then they're going to revolt in some way or another. Um, How would that show up in New Zealand? I'm, I'm thinking... The revolution side of it will show up in the formation of a new left of centre party in the within the next decade. I'm kind of feeling that the conditions that are required for formation of something that challenges the status quo are there now. People are having trouble getting in houses. Healthcare system is not meeting everybody's needs. Um, it was pretty clear the education system is not either. And if you look at all of that, the underlying basis underlying problem is it's wealth distribution and until we address that we won't get anywhere and people are not going to want to address that till they get to a certain critical point but I think we're quite close to that now. Were you surprised at the IRD's uh, survey to find that the top one or two percent paid half the taxes compared to average people? Well not if you no, I'm sure you weren't either. Um, um, if you believe, if you understand anything about Keynesian economics, you'd understand that's exactly what happens as you put more and more flat tax in place. Yeah, that's so, what GST is. So GST is effectively a flat tax. Um, now you need that's to buy your food, too. yeah, and user pays as well. But you know you have to buy your food, so and you got to pay GST on all of that. So there's no, there's no. If you are on. If you're on, say, 55, or let's say 50,000, just to keep the math simple, um, you're going to be spending well over 20,000 on food, right? Yeah. And if you're on 100,000 and you're paying 20,000 on food, well, then you play proportionally much less. And that's all got the same tax on it. So 
What's happened is that all the tax burden has been moved away from the wealthiest and moved into the general population. And therefore it's no surprise at all that those people who are, they're not paying 15% on their income tax because they've got ways to get around it, whereas you're all paying 15% whenever you buy something. That that alone is going to cause that problem. The other problem is everybody has to buy food, but if you're, you know, you're making half a million dollars a year or a million dollars a year, um, you can put that into property or savings. In fact, that's one of the things that happens. They put it into property and they don't pay tax on it. And no that, capital gains. And then but that causes the property search. But, you know, if you make under 50000 you're going to spend most of it on food and things you need every day. And you're going to pay GST on every bit of that. That's why there's been the call to take GST off food. I think I would approach that from a slightly different direction. I just keep pushing up the minimum wage. Um, if you want to look at these really strong economies, I mean, people keep going and comparing us to Australia across the ditch. Well, bottom line, really, the main difference is basically salaries. Well, they kept their union structure strongly. Mm. And so they weren't allowed, the governments really weren't allowed to cut wages as sharply as they were in New Zealand. Well, think about this too, though, from the government's perspective. If you raise wages, then you're getting income tax off all those people who got more made, who got more wages, which means you're getting more income coming in, which you, you can then spend on the social good. So this drive to the minimum, you know, what was it called, low-wage economy, they were deliberately calling it that, that also would have meant a low-income government and everything else that comes with that. There's this points at which you need to set your economy, and we've set ours at probably the most inanely low level you could have set it at. Um, you know, so that, that just keeps going on and on and on then. And so, yeah, you've got all these people who are not paying taxes, and that tax could have been used for the extra MRIs at the hospital, building the hospital without cutting back on it at all, building those rail systems you're talking about, making sure the university is well-funded, could have all been used for that. And, st- and they still would have had the best house in town. And instead, it's being used now, and they're speculating against each other for the best house in town. And so that now thing is now worth 50% more than it used to be, or it should be. It's just been waste, in my opinion. The, uh, I'm going to play some more music from um, Jack Commons' anthem, Jazz Low, and it says, Looking for the Common Man. There's a man on the run and they pull the place down to find him. He's wandered through the moving of mountains, making a Unpredictable, as strong as the chains out to bind him. This is his country, and will of the people's his name. A fearsome fill of drink might just get him talking. He's even suspected of lending a helping hand. A sad state of affairs, they say one's got him walking And if it's fighting for rights, the will of the people's your man Come on, 
you're strong, come all you feeble. Where can I find that will of the people? Come on and speak up now if you can. Where can I find that man? Come on, you're strong, come all you feeble. Where can I find that will of the people? Come on and speak up now if you can. Where can I find that man? Where can I find that man? They say he once fought off an army that threatened to chain him Through false political prophets out on their But when times got hard, there were too many too ready to blame him. And the next we knew, will of the people disappear. Come on, you're strong, come on, you're feeble. Where can I find that will of the people? Come on, and speak up now if you can. Where can I find that man? Come on, you're strong, come on. Where can I find that will of the people? Come on and speak up now if you can. Where can I find that man? Where can I find that man? Talking with Councillor Jim O'Malley, and we've just been listening to Jazz Lowe singing um, about finding the will of the people. Now, when you hear the word common good, what do you think? What's it mean to you? Mm. Well, it's probably the, it's the two words, isn't it? So, obviously. The common, but they're sick, they they belong together. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think for me, it always means what's good for all of society. Um, and 
generally speaking, I'm confident that when you're in that environment and you take that perspective of what's good for everybody as your starting perspective, you end up providing what is actually good for everybody, and that's what what government's supposed to do, I guess. It requires people to be individually sacrificing, though, and I think that's the bit that we've gone away from. The idea that that once you have achieved the stuff that you need in life, then from that point on, any more that you acquire is, I wouldn't say, I'm not saying you can't acquire, but any more you acquire is basically coming to you and you should be asking yourself the question, how much do I need? Um, and and could that could some of that be going somewhere else for others who need it, you know? Do we need that kind of attitude if we're really going to deal with climate change? Climate change is hitting us already, and we haven't really done much to mitigate it, even in New Zealand, or maybe especially in New Zealand. <laughs> Almost especially in New Zealand, to be honest, yeah. Um, so is the common good an important policy to have in that kind of circumstance? Well, I think, it's, again... Yeah, it is. Um, and again, when you talk about the common good at that point, now you're talking about all of humanity, um, not just Dunedin or New Zealand, um, because this is a global event. I, some people will say, oh, why bother? You know, I'm just one in billions, so why should I bother? And I'm like, well, if you have that attitude, then everybody's going to fail and we're all going to fail. Um, and only by working only by doing your part that you think morally and socially you're supposed to do. If, if we could get enough people in the world doing that, then we'll have the right outcome. But it actually has to be done at that level and it has to be a conscious decision. Um, and when you do things for the common good, there, has to, there will be an expectation that you won't necessarily maximise yourself in that process. Um, but we have to, and I, and I guess that's why people have mocked the carbon, you know, the climate emergency um, declarations that most councils have made, and you know, we're now starting to put together a climate change adaptation plan as well as our mitigation plan. Um, and people have said, "Well, why are you bothering Dunedin so small?" And it's like, "Well, you can't just use that. You can't do that because if you do, if you just don't act because you're small, then nobody will act. Um, we've all got to act on the idea that it's the principle, and the principle is what you're going after." which I guess is, as you said, the common good. I remember I came to New Zealand in about 72. Norman Kirk was prime minister. And one of the reasons I came was there were a couple of friends of mine. They were older than me, but good friends. And they were living in Auckland for a couple of years. And they kept writing and talking. about New Zealand really was a social welfare state, it really was for the common good. Mm -hmm. And there was a real feeling when I arrived that the common good was what government was about and what society was about. And it seems, I'm afraid we've lost that sense. Both the people to a certain extent and the government and politicians don't seem to have a vision of the common good. Mm -hmm. I can actually distinctly remember a story from back then and it was just actually just my parents talking to me and I would have just been a boy um, and my father who I think probably switched between Labour and National all through his voting life um, being a farmer 
said, you know, New Zealand is a social experiment. It was pride, he said that. Um, and New Zealanders felt, again, up till this Labour government that came in um, under Longy, um, up till that point, whether you were voting national or you voted Labour, you still voted for the common good. And, that, I mean, Muldoon now, the last national MP of that era, or Prime Minister of that era, would look, he would look left of Labour now in terms of his social spending, even though he was a National Party leader um, and brought us the Springbok Tour and all other these lovely right-wing things. But, he, but the idea was that is the only way that we can function as a nation is that we have to agree that this is the standard that every New Zealander must live to. And then once you set that standard, that obliges you to move money around. It obliged you to make sure that a little isolated community had a good road to it, had a good telecom system running into it. Used to even have a post office in its day. Um, And we knew that those things ran at a loss for that little town, but we also knew that every New Zealander had access to the same standard of living. And that that was a compact that we all ran with. And that was directly challenged by those guys, Preble, Douglas, Moore. Um, and they said, what's wrong with being wealthy? And they actually, I remember that whole period of change where wealth became worshipped for the first time. And it used to be that acquisition of wealth over and above what you needed. People were, people were wealthy people. People had lots of land and lots of houses in town and they drove nice cars, but they weren't ostentatiously wealthy. And they wouldn't do it at the expense of their community around them. And then we just completely flipped the switch on that and said, no, selfishness is the way to do it. That'll bring efficiencies. And we just became selfish. Yeah, I remember a quote from David Longy <laughs> that um, inequality is the engine of the economy. Like it was a great thing. No. And we, 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 haven't, we haven't switched back. I always thought that we'd... You know, at some point we'd say enough. You know, um, I genuinely thought where we were. I genuinely thought at the coalition that formed the last election, so the Green New Zealand First Labour coalition, that there was going to be a cleaning of the ship and and a, and a, a real looking at what is the underlying basis of how Labour has been behaving in the last thirty years and a recognition that a significant number of mistakes were made as they raced to the centre. Um, and unfortunately, not only did that not happen, I, I'm now convinced that most of those MPs are so comfortably middle class that they don't know what it's like to be working class. They don't know what it's like to be living on the minimum wage or the living wage, and therefore are not setting policies up for those people. They're setting policies up entirely for the centre group of the country. Well, Jim, thanks a lot for coming on, and I appreciate the conversation, and hopefully in a, at some point we'll have a, a more helpful story to tell. I Honestly, I mean, the one thing I would say, thanks for having me on, one thing I would say is I have a lot of faith in the country and society. There are, there are people who do want to get this country to be the equitable country it can be. And I, and I do think if any country can make that journey, it is New Zealand. Um, it's why I came back here after living in the United States for so long. I was very happy to come back. I was just disappointed to find the political environment I came back to. But we'll, be get, we'll get there one day. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.